Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Travel Tales podcast with the guest. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Travel Tales podcast. I'm Mike Siegel, and this is the episode with my guest, Nick King, a cameraman and filmmaker who I had the pleasure of meeting, and you will meet very shortly. As always, you can write me at mike at traveltalespodcast.com. Our website is traveltalespodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at traveltalespod, and you can follow us on Stitcher Radio at the Travel Tales Podcast. And if you're at iTunes, please, 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 when you're at iTunes, I say this all the time, but I'm going to say it again. Try to give us a nice rating, maybe add some stars on there for us, say a few nice things, and that helps boost our rating and helps people find the show. So if you can do that, that would be swell. I hope you're having an excellent holiday season. Please be safe out there. Travel safely. If you're staying at home, ah, hell, get drunk on the sofa. It's what Jesus would have wanted this time of year. Enjoy my talk with Nick King. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm Mike Siegel, and I'm here with Nick King. Hi. How are you? That's a great name, by the way. Oh, thank you. That's like an action movie. Like, (laughs) you know, you should be a spy with that name. Yeah, two syllables, just bang. Yeah, no messing around. You're in, you're out. Nine mil slugs. Nick King. Nick King. Is my voice nice? Is it, is Man it action of mystery? Movie? It yeah, is. You got a yeah. great great set All of pipes right. there. Yo. Have you ever done some uh, voiceover work? I haven't. I oh, haven't. you should think about it. Uh, I will. <laughs> I am right now. Um, if you haven't uh, noticed from Nick's accent, he is from Mississippi. <laughs> Correct. Born and raised. Born and raised, y'all. Um, no, you are Australian. Yes, and you can tell that because you probably just heard me swallowing a mouthful a beer. of beer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> keeping the cliche real. <laughs> how many? Uh, how long have you been in the states? This time, three months. Okay, and you, uh, we should tell the people you are a filmmaker. I'm a filmmaker, and you day to day you are a uh, you make your living as a cameraman, pretty much as a cameraman and an editor. Okay, and no acting in there. I try to avoid it. Okay, yeah. good. Good. We don't need any more. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm no threat to anyone in this town. <laughs> well, of. there's a lot of cameramen. Yeah, that's true. So um, tell me about... Uh, I asked you here because we met through my friend Dan Rosen, who also did the show once. Hi, Dan. Hello, Dan, if you're listening, which he probably is. <laughs> um, uh, we had dinner, and you had mentioned that you had uh, done a bunch of shoots, like uh, you were in Antarctica... And you were... I was in the Antarctic. Antarctic? Yeah. Okay. I went North Pole, not South Pole. Oh, you were... Okay, you were in the Arctic. What did I just say? Antarctic is Now, are we going to edit this bit out so that we seem knowledgeable? (laughs) Let's get the map out and then... uh, Okay, you were in the Arctic. I was in the the Arctic. Okay. Yeah. Antarctic would be the South Pole. Would be the South Pole. Okay, okay. You were up north. What were you shooting up there? I was uh, doing a documentary on a a guy that was an Australian who was going to run from the North Pole to the South Pole. Uh, so he did 52 miles a day for about a year, uh, and he started off getting dropped onto the geographic North Pole. Oh, my God. And then he, he was running? How, he, how do you run in the snow? Well, he was a terrible skier, um, <laughs> and he didn't really try to learn, so he, he put on snowshoes. And um, he, his, the rest of his team that he, he went with at the North Pole, they were skiing, uh, but he was a snowshoe man. So I mean, he had skis, but he kept breaking his bindings because he tried to basically run in them. <laughs> So, did you know this guy before? 
No, this was a this was a work assignment. Uh, my, my good friend uh, Greg Quayle is my boss, and he he gave me about I think from memory ten days notice. Oh my god! And he said, "Do you want to go on a twelve month shoot from North Pole to South Pole?" Twelve months. Yeah, and I, you know, of course, you say yes to that sort of a you know an offer. Well, not everybody says yes to that. Some people have lives that they don't want to leave behind. Yeah. Well, I um. <laughs> <laughs> my my girlfriend wasn't as excited as I was. Yeah, that's what I mean. There you go. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> so uh, so you take off. So you were in Australia at the time when Correct. you got this gig. Yep. And you didn't know who this guy was. No, I'd met him. I met him in that ten day period of notice. That Did you I say had. okay? He was an Australian guy. Yeah. Okay. And uh, this was for a film or a TV series. It was a. Uh, it was. A shoot that was kind of going to be... We, we crossed live to Australian television every two weeks, so we did updates from the road um, for a morning show, a bit like Good Morning America uh, in Australia. They were the kind of chief right. sponsor, and so we did, um, we did... We had a couple of different satellite setups for v- different kinds of interweb access, depending on which uh, long, longitude and latitude we were on and which satellite was overhead, <laughs> and we kind of... That was, that was how the mission was funded, mostly. So... I remember you were telling this story at dinner, and uh, what was the main fault of this guy? I love this story. Oh, and, and th- this this isn't going to go anywhere, is it? This podcast. <laughs> no, this isn't only public. the World Wide Web. Yeah, right. Uh, you know what's the uh, look? I guess my, you can dance around it a little bit. In my opinion, uh, the, this guy was an amazing athlete, and he had amazing resolve and mental toughness. And I think that was also his biggest drawback because he spent all this time on the road every day. Uh, you know, once we were on the roads, he was running maybe 10 hours a day. So it was a phenomenal effort and incredibly impressive. But he was just inside his head for 10 hours a day, just kind of being stubborn and being like, I'm in control. I'm doing this. This is all me. And, Which is and bad for the camera. Bad for the camera because that's <laughs> completely internalized. You want those internal, uh, you know, moody types who are uh, non-expressive. Yeah. And that's that's really what you want in a documentary. Yeah, so, strong and silent makes really <laughs> dynamic television. <laughs> And I mean the for thing 12 is, months. yeah. And the, the thing is, at the end, you know, at the end of uh, a day of of kind of feeling like the world is trying to make you hurt because you're running 52 miles, which is a That's huge insane. amount. I think you just shut down, and that was that was his talent. That was why he was able to finish every day and get up and do it again. But that was also why he was able to let nobody in at any time. Oh, that single-minded focus doesn't lead to a really well-rounded personality. Not so much. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever happened to this? Whatever whatever became of it? Uh, it's it's in the can. Um, <laughs> I I went as far as Colombia, so we can you know we might want to go into more detail. Yes, than that. absolutely. But North Pole, Colombia, the end. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, and now the the film is in post production and uh, it's getting cut, and we'll see what happens. So tell me about uh, shooting in the Arctic. How do you? Uh, how does the camera work? I mean, does, does things freeze up on you? Is it a complete hassle? It's, it's got to be a nightmare. It's a it's a real juggle of um, of fighting the technology and the elements because the the first thing is that electronic batteries uh, just don't work in the cold in the same way. It's not that they break; it's just that their capacity uh, is greatly reduced. So, a battery that would give you four hours, let's say, in the cold, it might give you twenty minutes. Oh, my God. And it's a bit unpredictable, so you (laughs) don't know. So what you end up having is you kind of, you strap the batteries as close to your own body as you can when you're not using them. That's the first thing. For your body heat to keep them warm? Yeah, so you try and keep them warm with your body and you have heat packs and things like that working on them. Then the second thing is if you can imagine most cameras have got small buttons, uh... Most cameras have metal pieces that you're holding onto. And you got a big mittens. And you got big mittens. <laughs> and in this case, so- sometimes two or three sets. 
because you've got your under your thin under ones and you've got your outer ones that are warm and then you've got the shell for waterproof oh, and windproofing. What a nightmare. So if you make a mistake with your settings, <laughs> you're committing to going through that whole thing again of taking some of them off. Oh. And if you're down to your bottom layer, which is the layer that you've got a bit of finger dexterity with, you maybe have two, three minutes before you start not feeling your fingers anymore. And oh then another God. minute after that, to the point that you start feeling like somebody's driving nails into your into your fingers. Oh, did anybody get frostbite? Or- uh, my colleague and boss Greg, he um he he kind of was doing that stubborn cameraman thing where you're like, I'm just gonna I'm, <laughs> I'm just gonna, gonna get it, five man. five seconds more and I'm gonna have the shot that I need. This is I can feel a Pulitzer Prize like creeping up on me. <laughs> um, and he you know a couple of his fingers were numb for like three four weeks afterwards. Oh my gosh! Um, so how long were you in the Arctic? We went into Norway uh, and an island that is administered by the Norwegians, which is called Svalbard, which I actually thought was a, a, a fictional place. <laughs> I'd read it in the uh, Golden Compass, you know, that movie a few years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. The, the books, the dark, his dark materials, they go to Svalbard. And oh, it's, they do? It's a kingdom run by polar bears. Oh, of course it is. And so when we touched down in Svalbard, I was a bit... <laughs> Where's the polar bears? Yeah, well, there were polar bears, but then none of them were wearing armor, <laughs> which was very disappointing. Or speaking. No, well, they spoke, but only to me. <laughs> did uh, did you have run-ins with bears, actual bears? Uh, we because they're supposedly vicious. Right? They are. I mean, I think a couple of people a year get eaten. Um, oh, wow. Svalbard, they're very strict. You see, street anytime you clear like the this sort of small little village type setup, and anytime you clear the little sim- little parts of civilization, there are there are signs everywhere, and the locals. Um, the, the very elegant and beautiful Norwegian people uh, who are out, you know, skiing in the afternoon, walking dogs, that kind of thing, sure. are all carrying guns. <laughs> just, just slung on the shoulder, just rifles. You can't walk your dog without a gun is basically yeah, the rule. Or, or you're like, you have a dog left. Yeah, yeah exactly. That, that's what the dog's there for. It's a decoy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Send the dog one way, um, you run the other way. And it's a weird thing because, they're, you know, they're carrying, they're carrying guns um, and yet the the town, this island, is this kind of strange utopia. Uh, there's no crime. There's uh, like I, you know, I had a let's say five ten thousand dollar camera rig. Um, within three days of being in Svalbard, I was parking our rental car in the supermarket car park, leaving the keys in the ignition, the engine running to keep <laughs> the heat on, and the camera on the front seat, and going in to do my shopping. And because where are you going to go? Right. And also, they have the highest standard of living, you know, almost anywhere in the world. Well, like, yeah, like, exactly. You know, Norway's really rich. I hear Oslo is like the most expensive city in the world now. I've I've heard the same thing. Did I, you go through there? No, straight into straight from London to we stopped over, but the flight was kind of direct through to this island. Um, oh wait a minute! So how did he run from this? Well, island? The island is like is kind of um, I guess maybe your base camp equivalent. Okay. It's where all it's where almost all uh, North Pole expeditions kind of start. So everyone brings their gear in on commercial flights to Svalbard and you assemble in this hangar that is administered by the Russians who are going to be your gateway to the actual ice. Ah, so there's a, a, a runway there and a little yep. airport. Yeah, there's a full, a full runway, full airport. Um, they can land pretty big planes there. So where were you staying? What were your accommodations while he's... Did he camp? Did he have like a tent? So we, we got there and there was two weeks of setup and training and gear check and waiting for food and barrels and tents and all kinds of things and, all, and personnel to arrive. Uh, and then you've got your scheduled departure out to the ice. Uh, and there's a second staging area um, out on the ice, which is like a temporary tent city. 
So we were on Svalbard for two weeks, getting all kind of prepped and ready to go. And at that time, it was just like dorm, you know, little dorm accommodations. Were there um, any women up there? There are some women. Svalbard okay. is a, is a is a very tourist town, so oh, okay, um, you do you do have a lot of a lot of outdoors women, particularly. Oh yeah, sure. Okay. Um, so that was all good, and then our flight out to the ice was delayed because of weather. Oh, okay. um, and so that was when it started to get a little uh, more like roughing it, and you know we got to sort of start feeling like we were tougher because the accommodations were sold out because you've got waves of expeditioners coming in. So we are in this hangar with nowhere to stay. So at that point, we we started kind of bunking in with a bunch of sweaty Russian men who were waiting Lovely. to go and do their shifts out. And they're the always ice. pleasant. They're always they smell good. <laughs> they yeah. um, they don't drink at all. No, they but they they play great kind of late night folk guitar. No, we have foot guitar. Folk guitar. Oh, folk guitar. Yeah. <laughs> so at any you know while you're on this kind of countdown of when can the plane take off, you kind of at any given at any given moment there's like four dudes like slithering around sleeping, and in the other corner there's a guy with a bottle of vodka <laughs> and a and a guitar, uh, singing you know songs of the homeland. Tell me about what you expected the Arctic to be like, and what surprised you about it. What was different? What didn't you expect up there? You know. It, you, you kind of the cold is is a new, for for me from Australia for an Aussie yeah you the kind of cold that you can experience which I'm sure people who maybe have spent some time in the middle of this country yeah in I'm winter, from Chicago um, <laughs> there's the a kind of cold that is that is not the kind of cold that you can just ignore because in Australia we tend to wear uh, flip flops and and board shorts all year round <laughs> yeah. to a degree and then we complain about how cold it is but you know no one bothers to point out you're not wearing shoes or a sweater <laughs> yeah. so uh you can tough it out cold like that whereas no, this, this is this will kill you this yeah kind this of, is death cold yeah this is death cold this is serious shit and and i was you know ho- holding cameras and and feeling that kind of evil bone crunching kind of <laughs> yeah. you know leech into your into your body is kind of terrifying Especially in a context where, like, on, on one of our training runs, I took a skimobile, a skidoo, up into the mountains. Uh, and then it was kind of stupid, but I, I followed the guys as far as I could. And then it was, like, sunset, and they were pitching a tent. And I was supposed to go back to base. And at that point, I was like, you know, I'm now alone on a glacier. <laughs> it's getting dark. I'm not 100% on how I got here. It's just me and a skidoo. And, I, and if, if I stop moving for 15 or 20 minutes, I, you know, things are going to start to get a bit messy. Or if and it you, runs out of gas or it breaks down or something. If that thing had broken down, I, you know, I would have been in serious trouble. And you can tell that. Like the adrenaline starts to kick in because <laughs> your body's not kind of like going, this is fine. You're, you know, you've got that sort of little danger needle that starts going, what is going on here? Wow. Did you... I mean, you come from a country... What part of Australia are you from? Uh, Sydney. Okay. Well, so you're from the city. But yeah. I mean, if you've been around Australia a bunch, you know the vastness of like no one around. If you yeah. get out in the country in Australia, there's no one yeah. there. I mean, there's no one. Did you get a sense of like uh, just the... I don't know, the uh, earth, you know, and just like... Yeah, definitely. Oh, my and, God. And even, even when I was in, in these little villages, because Svalbard is, is glacial, so it's, it's stunningly beautiful. And to be looking out your window of your bedroom and seeing a glacier, like seeing these kind of huge mountain formations just all around you and a kind of epic uh, fjord, which is like a, you know, like a bay, basically iced over, seeing the way that that can change when the wind changes, the, you know, the little peaks on the ice point different directions, break up, turn into water, 
two hours later be like thick ice that you could drive a car over. Like that kind of sort of spectacular, rugged kind of beauty is is pretty, uh, you know, amazing. Did you see any wildlife other than polar bears? Um, let me think. Were there uh, reindeer up there and uh, caribou? Yeah, there were. There were reindeer. We um we kind of came across some reindeer when we were doing that training run. And um, any whales or anything like that? Did you see anything like that? I didn't. I didn't see whales. I know they're out there. Right. Um, there's whales, polar bears. There's a kind of like there's a good spectrum of seals. Stuff. I think. Or yeah, probably a lot of seals. You and I actually went um dog sledding. Oh, did you? Yeah, I did a husky dog sled <laughs> thing, um, which was really cool. They um it that those things can pull like oh yeah yeah you kind of have you ever have you no, ever I've done, seen them but I've done never, much dog sledding I, I haven't done much <laughs> what do they call it mushing dog mushing, mushing. Yeah, yeah mushing yeah we haven't done it uh, it wasn't big in Chicago no okay right it's getting bigger it's <laughs> yeah, it's on the way up it's on the way the pro league basketball are, um, baseball dog sledding yeah but dog dog sledding is is incredible because those those dogs they like. If they don't work, they they get really upset, and so when they're getting harnessed onto the thing, they're just you've got to anchor it. the The dog sled is like anchored into the ice so that it can't just run away because the, as soon as you harness the dogs on, you can just feel the kind of torque of these things just like <laughs> pulling. So, did the subject of your documentary did he make it through all right? I mean, did he get out of the Antarctic and his snowshoes okay? Well, here, the, the the they were pretty well prepared. I mean, he's obviously a super fit human being. He had an incredible guide, um, a guy by the name of Eric Phillips, who um, is a total legend. And um, they broke, he the runner broke his skis um, sort of, I think, eight hours in. And he, oh. they, were, they had two sets of spare bindings um, and he broke all of them within the first week. And this was in the context of 40 days on the ice. Um, 40 days on the ice. So he switched to snowshoes, and that that improved things. Uh, they were they were pretty, you know, they were pretty good. It was it was quite funny. I I flew back around to the Canadian side of the Arctic Circle uh, to do the logistics on their resupply flight because halfway through we we flew over the top of them and dropped fresh fuel and more food. Um, and at that point, I'd gotten through satellite phone communications that you know, they were running out of bindings. So I was in the middle of this isolated, um, like one, one man town in the Canadian Arctic circle, uh, bartering the beer that I'd smuggled in. It was a dry town, but I, you know, I brought some beer in. Well, of course, Aussie can't yeah. be, can't be without it for 40 days. My God. So I, I swapped, uh, some of my beer for some ski bindings with another team <laughs> that were up in the Arctic on that Canadian side doing a preparation for something they were doing. Well, you can't so, leave that beer sitting in the car. It'll no, freeze on you. Exactly. So I ended up, I ended up dropping more, um, more bindings out to them as well. And they, they actually, they made it without too much, uh, too many problems. Actually, that would be the one thing they, they would steal. They They'd leave that five thousand dollar camera, but a case of beer, like, oh, that's that's unique. That's out black here. market. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but probably like from from my perspective, the um, the most stressful thing was the actual drop into the North Pole, like the start of the shoot. So you went to the actual physical. North I, Pole. Yeah, I went to the physical and North Pole. So this is the time of year. I'm assuming that it's light twenty four seven. Light twenty four seven. The sun's kind of we we had, we're actually really lucky, other than the kind of white out almost that stopped us from departing. Um, we had kind of beautiful crystal clear days. Um, and that, that's kind of, even though you can kind of feel the, the evil cold, it's, it's kind of, it's different. It's when the wind starts to blow that you really start to suffer. Oh yeah. Um, but kind of jumping back to your question about equipment. So for the drop off to the North pole, um, that for, as a cameraman, that's like high stakes because we're going to do that one time. 
There's no, we, we, we have. <laughs> you can't do pickups. You can't do pickups. There's, you know, you've, we had, I think, 45 minutes at, at the North Pole to A, get everything prepped and ready to go, and then B, film the small crew of four going off across the ice. And what happens is if you're changing lenses, if you're moving gear from warm to hot, uh, warm to cold, sorry, um, you're getting condensation and everything's misting over and all this kind of thing. So we negotiated with the uh, crazy Russian excellent people uh, <laughs> that they were going to do one flyover from the helicopter of our guys. And, you know, we needed that money shot, that aerial shot of the, of the four of them skiing off yeah. into, the, into the, you know, into the, the nether. Um, <laughs> so I'd left a set of gear in the helicopter to stay at the same temperature that was inside the helicopter so that when we were getting that shot, I could swap out fog up. to the right camera gear. So we, you know, we were held up, we were delayed, get in, you know, we've got to get in the chopper, we've got to go, we've got to go, there's other people waiting, all this kind of thing, get into the chopper, turn on the spare camera, it doesn't turn on. <laughs> oh, so no. so I'm, I'm all prepped for the money shot, Right. <laughs> camera doesn't turn on, my boss is standing over me going, you know, in, in true Australian style, he's, he's, <laughs> dropping, he's dropping multiple F-bombs on my head, <laughs> yeah. like, this is the shot of the series, you know. Um, so I, I then go to the second backup camera, doesn't turn on. I'm back to my first back, my first camera, but I had that out in the cold, so I'm I know that's going to fog up. But I'm like, okay, well, this is my only option. So I turn that on; it doesn't turn on. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> so then I just went into random panic mode, which <laughs> involved me just detaching the lenses and putting. I don't know why my brain decided it was a lens issue, but I just started swapping through all the lenses that I had at random, just one after another, and I went through three or four times through the three lenses, and then lo and behold. On the ninth attempt, the camera just booted up. Oh. At this point, the chopper is already like a foot off the ground. And, you know, the Russians are screaming like, what are you doing? Why are you not? <laughs> My boss is, where's the fucking shot? <laughs> and so I, I'm like, I'm ready. I'm good to go. Let's do this. And there's no harness for me. And so my boss is like, how are we getting? The- where's his harness? Victor, who runs the camp out on the North Pole, comes, you know, sort of screams over the noise of the engine. No harness. I hold him. <laughs> he walks up to me, loops his, uh, you know, bear-like claw arm under my <laughs> His armpit, hairy Russian arm. His hairy Russian arm <laughs> and just leans me out of the chopper uh, door oh. as it takes off. Um, so your life's in this guy's hands. So my life is in Victor's hands, which gives me two hands to operate the camera, which is great. So I lean out of the window of the out of the door of the helicopter. We do this one flyover, and um, and I bagged the perfect shot. Could not have been better in slow motion, in focus. Everything you know, everything worked out. But that was you know that was kind of a stress. Wow. Oh, that that's frightening. Mm. And how freezing was it when that helicopter door opened? How good are you at converting to uh, Fahrenheit from Celsius? <laughs> oh, yeah, I have a I have a converter on my phone. Uh, it was I think that day it was around about minus thirty five or forty Celsius with a no with maybe another fifteen for wind. Okay, I'll do that. Hold on, temperature. What was it? Let's let's call it minus forty. Okay. Whoops. Oh, crap. minus forty. Here we go. Can I do minus? Oh, yeah, here we go. Minus 40 Celsius is minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Is that the point where they switch over? Maybe. Let me try minus 30. Minus 30 degrees is minus 22 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. So yeah, they're about even. They're getting cl- that. That must be whatever really cold. it is. It's fucking cold. That's the, <laughs> yeah. I think it actually it's not just- as impressive when there's no conversion though. I'm, <laughs> I'm know, underwhelmed. It, it actually says on the converter, "fucking cold." That's yeah. what it says. It was it was nine Kelvin. Whatever it is, yeah. you'll die if you're like exposed to it. Yeah. 
Um, just one more thing before we get off the uh, Arctic here. Did you notice, as we hear so much about the the ice caps melting and all this other stuff, did you talk to the people up there and did, have they said, that it's like, oh yeah, it's completely changed? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing when you're trekking across the ice from the North Pole in the direction of Canada or Russia, um, what you really watch out for is there are, there are things called leads, which is where the ice is broken up and you're facing the ocean. And so going around them is tiresome and it can be a long distance thing, but you don't want to fall through the ice or you paddle across, which is you know dangerous for other reasons. If you fall in, you maybe have an hour. If you don't get yourself into a tent with warmth within yeah. an hour of falling in, you're, you're dead. Just that's, that's yeah, how it goes. But when the leads come back together, because the whole thing is a mobile plate of ice, when the leads come back together, they collide and they shoot up these insane pressure ridges. So those are the two, and then those things can get you know fifteen feet high, so it's pretty arduous. Um, and Eric, the the guide, has been out to the North Pole a lot, and he he said that he's never seen such diabolical pressure ridges, which would suggest to me that it's all a lot more mobile than it used to be. And they, breaking up. And- they 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 you know they had days where they could just all it was was pressure ridges to the horizon. Um, and the beautiful thing about the North Pole is that if you're trekking to Canada. You can trek, say, 10 miles in the day and be really satisfied with how quickly you went today and what great progress you made. You pitch your tent. That night, the ice plate is blown back the other way <laughs> and you can wake up further away than when you went to bed. Oh, no. um, so that can be pretty heartbreaking. And that happened to them for the first set of two weeks. We were looking at their, um, their satellite. You know, They were pinging a, a beacon and, and getting their, their coordinates every night. And basically, the first two weeks, they went south. Oh, they kept moving back. Yeah, they were they were they were trying to walk. You know, I think they were trying to walk east more or less. <laughs> and for the first two weeks, all they did was go south. Well, at some point, you had to go south anyway. Yeah, that's true. Just keep going. Yeah, just, just keep walking. Just walk. You'll get there. It'll it'll sort of sort. <laughs> Maybe you'll end out. up in Russia. Maybe you'll end up in Canada. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if the sun sets, then that's when you know you're in trouble. Exactly. So you go to Svelbard, and then you get off, and then so it's an island. And so did he fly over? So it's, a, it's, it's two flights. Um, the first is by uh, Russian Antonov, which is this awesome jet that is terrifyingly old now because um, the jet engines like are Soviet on... Soviet era. It thing? is. Oh, God. Um, the jet engines are on the top of the wings, not the bottom. And I, I believe it is because it, it means less ice going through the engines. And oh. it also means less heat dissipating out onto the runway. Because the thing is... The but runway at the North Pole oh, ice up the is just ice, and then and under that, it's water. So we got stuck at the North Pole because about 20 minutes before our plane landed, the uh, runway turned into the ocean, oh, which is a bit scary. Yeah, 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 a little bit. Um, and so they had to plow a new runway. You know, they've, they've got uh, tractors out there that they drop out of planes. They have these parachute guys that get, they're the first guys that they, they jump out of planes, parachute out with uh, tractors on parachutes, and then they plow a runway. Uh, so when once they plowed a new runway for us to make up for the old one that was ocean, um, <laughs> I've never been in a plane that had to reverse before it took off. It reversed. They'd shortened the runway in this whole replow phenomenon, and so <laughs> what happened is they they warmed the engines up. We're all in the plane. We're all set to go. The the, the pilots kind of look look down the runway and they sort of they shake their heads and they get back out of the plane. They go and look. They're like, oh, no, we don't like. <laughs> they get back in the plane. They reverse the plane a little bit. Oh. So they reversed it basically into a snowdrift. 
then put the brakes on, went up to like 100% thrust with the brakes on. So the whole plane is like just juddering. Yeah. And this is pretty scary when you're oh, yeah. sitting packed into this, you know, 70s era aeroplane. So you had a neutral drop yeah. at the, uh, in the car. Yeah. And then, so the, and then the, the beautiful thing was a, a Russian safety briefing. At the point when they were going to release the brakes and see if, if we could take off or if we were just going to, you know, plow into the snowdrift, <laughs> the safety briefing consisted of a guy standing up and saying, take off. <laughs> and then we did. Oh, well, they have special tires. Is it like snow tires or something? Uh, they're just, how do you No, They're just normal looking tires. I don't think they bother <laughs> with any of that rubbish. Uh, so that's how you get to the sort of tent city. Uh, and then after that, it's a chopper to the North Pole. Okay. So then he went. So as you're going south, he went through Norway. He went through Svalbard. Mm-hmm. And so his trek kept going down through Europe. Did he no, get- he, 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 so he was dropped into the North Pole. That was the starting point. Right. And, and then, then he, he hiked to Canada. Oh, he went to Canada. to Canada. Ah, you yeah. went to Svalbard on the way up. Yeah, yeah. So okay, Svalbard's so just where you have to go to get to the North Pole that okay. way. So you went down through North America. What part of... Uh, had you been through Canada at all before this? This was my first time in Canada. Okay. Um, and did you go which which side? Did you go right down Qu- the middle? Quebec. Okay, started Quebec. in far okay. northern. He's a roadrunner, so you know the whole um, North Pole to South Pole thing was symbolic. He he did he did more uh, distance than than North Pole to South Pole as the crow flies. But he he basically like after he reached the the mountains of Canada, it was another light plane flight to the first road. Okay, so you're going through Canada. I'm assuming this is summer. I would hope. Yeah, this is <laughs> coming into summer, which was a weird time of year in, in far northern Quebec because there were days where it was like 100 Fahrenheit yeah. and then it would snow the next morning. Yeah. And it was just like, what? <laughs> it was yeah. hard to get used to. So did you go down the east coast of the US? Did you go through... Uh, yeah, we, like came, we came down through... Niagara the Falls? Border. Um, just, no, we came, we came through in Vermont. We oh, crossed, right. crossed okay. the border in Vermont um, and then down through into New York. And then sort of that way. Did he go through the city or did he just stay out in the country? Ran through the city. He did? Yeah. Okay. Um, I get to say that I've, I've stayed in a, uh, I, I've, I've slept in a, a motorhome like parked outside Central Park <laughs> on like Fifth Avenue or Fourth Avenue. We had, a, oh, we had really? a permit to park there for our shoot. And so- um, <laughs> Like the rednecks pulling in with it. Hey, where can we park this? Yeah, exactly. It's Manhattan. Yeah. Can we pull into the park? No. You and we, we met a couple of um, a couple of PR uh, people who were working for the for the run as well, and some you know some very trendy hot young ladies mm-hmm. who um, they all came back to the motorhome and stayed over. There was no funny business, okay, but they stayed over more or less because I think they wanted to be able to say that they had slept the night <laughs> with a bunch of sweaty drunk Australians in a motorhome, <laughs> Fifth Avenue Central Park. Right, that's a cool. So did he make his way down the uh, East Coast? Yes. Okay. And um, so he went through the south. And then shot, did a little offshoot to New Orleans because the run was um, raising money for the Red Cross. Oh, very so nice. So we went and kind of met the Red Cross in uh, in New Orleans and kind of, you know, shared some stories. What was your... Because um, that's one of those cities. There's, there's only a handful of cities that I recommend to people overseas when they come to visit America because they always ask me where they should go. Yeah. And New Orleans is always one of them because it's, it's just very unique. Oh, it's a, it's, it's you, one of my favorite places. I'd never been there before. It's, it's cool, isn't it? It is. It's super cool. I, I really, there's a great kind of collision of um, kind of trashy 
like trashy fun, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got your kind of Bourbon Street car accident style, <laughs> right. drink a hand grenade, you know, get down sort of thing. But then you've got some really kind of old school, you know, bars and restaurants. And, yeah, it's and- the old South, and then there's that French influence. It's different than the whole Cajun thing, and it's yeah. all it's all really unique. You know? Yeah, you you can kind of have. And- yeah, you you can kind of have three three different three really different experiences within like five blocks, like three really vibrant cultural experiences that are so totally diverse. Yeah, and the food is incredible. I, yeah, I really I got I had some problems after I oh, left. Oh, did you? Because I, I don't think I ate enough fiber. <laughs> <laughs> I think I is there fiber in a deep fried oyster? There no, is, not, right? Well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> didn't have enough fiber. Well, that's yeah, it, it is a problem. Yeah, let me. I, I won't go into any more detail. Yeah, than that. not a lot of vegetables. But there happening. were issues. <laughs> Duly noted. Duly noted. Um, so then you make your way. And you went through Mexico. Yes, I I got as far. I I only spent a day in Mexico because um, then I had to I had to retreat. Uh, to Costa Rica because we needed to cut a promo for the documentary to send off to a few networks. So I set up an edit suite in uh, Harco in, in oh, yeah, Costa yeah, Rica. Yeah. Big surf party town. Yeah. Um, but the, the Very Mexico, Aussie-like. Yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> it, it did feel quite Australian. Yeah. The, um, but the Mexico thing was pretty wild because we crossed the border in uh, Brownsville, Brownsville, Texas. Brownsville, Texas, sure. Uh, and just across there is Matamoros, uh, which at the time was the the number one place to go and get shot yeah the murder capital of the world yeah um so that was kind of scary and we we kind of <laughs> rolled into to brownsville a few days ahead of the runner and um we we were sort of trying to we had some mexican fixes who were sort of sorting out how is the safety going to work and negotiating with the government and the military and the police and all these different people so uh me and my boss were in a bar and my girlfriend was there as well at that point in Brownsville, we got the call from the Mexican fixer at like 5 p.m. Um, we need you to come across the border to meet the head of the federal police. We're like, sure, let's let's <laughs> let's do this. And and this was really cool because I I feel like um, we called a cab and to I, take you over the border. Well, we didn't tell him that. Okay, <laughs> we called a cab and 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 he arrived. He's, and he was this really cool guy called Rafael who happened to uh, you know have Mexican heritage, so he spoke Spanish. So we're sitting in the car, and my boss is looking at me, going, "I think Rafael is going to be our guy." So, <laughs> you know, five minutes into what was for Rafael a ten-minute cab drive, uh, my boss sort of said, "Tell me, mate." If I give you 150 bucks, <laughs> will you drive us to Mexico? <laughs> and he's like, oh, I don't know. I'm not meant to take this taxi over. The-. And, and we were like, ah, oh, come on, 200 bucks. <laughs> and in the end, Raphael was totally there for us. He ended up um, spending like four days with us. Four days? In and out of Mexico like six times. Oh. Working, acting as a translator at times. He he negotiated the purchase of a four-wheel drive in a Mexican car yard. Um, <laughs> but that first night, he took us across and we were met by four four-wheel drives that each had a machine gun turret on the top of it. Like 15 dudes in uniforms with, you know, Uzis or something. Um, and we were driven to this intense building and we sat down at a boardroom table and in walked the chief of the federal police. Um, and a, a negotiation took place. How much did he want? That was the beautiful thing about the, <laughs> the federal police were, were at that point the ones that were trying to crack down on all of the kind of inter-cartel slash military slash everything corruption. So those guys were, um, they were amazing. They didn't want to oh, bribe. Really? They just didn't want us to get killed. Yeah. Because that would have made them look pretty bad. 
Um, so Did you ever, were there any incidences that were kind of scary? Like close? That you'd say, oh, we're in real trouble here? Only motor, motor accidents. Nothing, um, nothing in terms oh, okay. of drugs or guns or anything like that. Just semi-trailers that would <laughs> kind of commit kamikaze on the freeway. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this guy had no problem running past all these. They must have thought, who was this crazy white guy running through? Yeah, they, well, they <laughs> they kind of, they you know, they had a lot of respect for him because you just looking at him, you could tell he'd been going for a while. Yeah. I'm picturing Forrest Gump with the beard and the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, it's not very, it's not a very kind description, but by the end of the run, he he looked like a crazy old woman. <laughs> and he had the kind of gait of a crazy old woman, too. Oh. If you can imagine your grandmother trying to, like, run. <laughs> that's kind of where he was at did he lose a ton of weight yeah he i mean he was a pretty he wasn't like a beefy dude well, yeah, to start a runner. With, but he'd done as much fattening up as he could but i think he um i think he lost 20 30 pounds by the end of it oh gosh um and he was eating like insanely like he was doing thousands of calories a day right so you meet up with them in Costa Rica, which I've been to before. It was beautiful. Yeah. And then you went to Panama. And then we went now, to Panama. Now, when this releases, I will, I'm probably going to release this while I'm in Panama, but I have not been there yet. So uh, give me the story of um, how long were you in Panama and getting from Panama to Colombia, I understand, is kind of a dicey thing. Well, yeah, I was, in, I was in Panama a couple of weeks um, doing logistics and planning for the jungle portion of the mission because... The um, the road in in Panama goes all the way to Colombia, except that you're you've got the Darien rainforest between the between Colombia and yeah, Panama. on the border, yeah. And the that rainforest is a incredibly dense and impenetrable, um, and b a sort of hothouse for people smuggling, drug smuggling, yeah. militias, separatism. Uh, it's a good place. Yeah, the guidebooks say if you're going to skip something, skip that. Yeah, and it's actually illegal to go in. Oh, okay. Which well, is why really I was, <laughs> which it. is why I was there for two in Panama for two weeks because we were having to ne- negotiate where our runner could could go because he didn't want to just fly over the top, um, but it wasn't going to be possible to go all the way through. So we were kind of negotiating between a guide, um, the Red Cross, and the military police as to where it was going to be allowable. Um, and so in the end, the the Panamanian uh, military were very kind enough to provide us with a, a flotilla. That's probably the wrong word, but I like it. Uh, a flotilla of um, men with machine guns who um, at when basically where the highway stopped, they arrived in a truck and my guy, the runner and another cameraman who, who was not me, probably thankfully, uh, walked off into the jungle surrounded by a flotilla of, of machine gun men. Um, and it was just like a dirt road he was going down? This a was path? like sort of known pathways but in no way maintained this was right. kind of take like a smuggler's uh route? yeah a, smuggler, a smuggler's route to the coast uh and then there was a sort of border outcropping where you could technically enter colombia and then it was a boat ride over to um a more serviceable part of yeah. colombia because i know on the caribbean side there i think you're talking about right yes exactly that's the uh Cunayala or something is the local tribe or something that mm-hmm. has that state up there and was that uh, but there's towns up there, though. I mean, you, it's not like completely there desolate, is, is it? My understanding of it was, I mean, I, I, I went fairly far in. Like I, the, and the town that I was in was, was tiny. Um, but it was certainly, it wasn't like a kind of deserted jungle. Right. But it, it's like you have to get through four or five military checkpoints to get there. Um, and they don't really want tourists to go down there. And I, I actually got, I kind of had my life saved by some 
some fabulously bilingual, trilingual German people. <laughs> I assume they spoke German. Yeah, I never yeah. spoke German with them. But uh, <laughs> uh, at the sort of third military post that I got to, um, they, they came and they, they did the normal thing where they take your passport and they ask you what you're doing. And in my really terrible Spanish, I wasn't able to really explain what I was doing. Um, and they just did that weird thing that sometimes happens at borders where they're not angry with you and they don't want to do anything, but you're not getting your passport back and you're not allowed to go. Yeah. So I was just pulled over on the side of the road um, and no one, I, I had no idea what was, what was going on. I didn't even know where my passport was anymore. And I was just kind of like, this is interesting. I'll, I'll call the fixer and he'll translate for me. No phone signal. Oh. So I was like, okay, I, I'm going to have to think about this one. Um, and about 20 minutes into my thinking, so clearly I, I hadn't come up with anything yet, <laughs> uh, this German backpacking couple came out of uh, a hut on the side of the road. And I was like, what are, you, what are you guys doing here? And they're like, we're trying to get into the Darien rainforest. Oh, and I was like, Germans. you know you're not meant to do that. And they're like, yeah, but we heard it was really beautiful. And I was like, well, I can drive you a little further down the road if you can convince that guy there to go find my passport. <laughs> and they did it. They went and they spoke Spanish much better than me. So they went and explained that I was I was a runner. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't you know? do like a journalist, journalista or something. Would that be bad? That might be bad. Um, you never know yeah, down yeah. there. Um, well, you've, got, you've always, I, I kind of, I've, I've never really balked at going places that were supposedly dangerous, but I, at the same time, I'm not gung-ho. And so in the back of your head, you have those stories of phony checkpoints that aren't real military and because, you know, it's a boom gate and a dude in khaki. So yeah. like, I think I just went all Boston then. It's a dude in khaki. Dude in khaki. It's like, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a boom <laughs> gate and some khaki and I'm thinking, what the, what am I doing? Um, I don't know. Was that New York? No, I don't know where that was yeah, from. That was Spanish. Was that? What? Yeah. That's what <laughs> no wonder you didn't get far down there. <laughs> yeah, I was, they were like, passport. And I'm I was trying to like, talk like Mark hey, Wahlberg. Hey, what's going on? <laughs> The um, so is that where your US where you ended at in Colombia? Yes, where you were done. Uh, I I sort of that was another like at the North Pole. That was a matter of me doing logistics and filming a departure and then leapfrogging ahead to the next step, which was to fly into um Colombia to try to uh, convince customs to give us our motorhomes back, which we had shipped from Panama. <laughs> oh, how much did they want? You know what was really frustrating? <laughs> they they didn't want a whole lot, but my Spanish was so bad that I couldn't communicate with them that I was willing to do a deal <laughs> if they would just let me have the motorhomes. Yeah. Um, I spent about 150 hours in waiting rooms. Um, wow. Just And I don't know what I was waiting for um, ever. I never knew. Uh, I never knew what form I was meant to fill out. And the really depressing thing was that each time I paid a bribe, it was like $10. Right. And I was just like, man, just you should have hit me up for 50. <laughs> Would have given you the 58 hours ago, happily. Um, but there was such a, I mean, I, stupid me not speaking the language. That's, yeah. you know, that's a, that's a trap for young players. Well, between North America and South America, you think they would have hired one guy on this crew who spoke Spanish. Because that was the one... Yeah, that guy was needed. still in Panama. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The one thing you needed, unless you went through... Did you go through Brazil? Uh, they need a Portuguese guy. No, but no, there was Other no than that, yeah, if you... Spanish um, is all you need. And now you live in LA. You yeah. really need it now. You got to work on this Spanish. <laughs> yeah, I really... I, Spanish is like on the list. It's like the bucket list is speaking Spanish. <laughs> Me too. I would My, love I to. I can get by, but I, I want to get conversational. I mm. really want to learn it. 
Yeah. I got to be thrown in it. I'm just, I can't, I have to be put in that situation. And then all of a sudden, I took two years in and then college. You, then it just comes back. kicks in. But yeah. uh, I really got to just stay there and work on it someplace. Well, you know, you're going to Panama. Yeah. It's a good place It's going to come back. It's yeah. going to come back. So um, let's get off this guy now. So we, we can wait for it. There's no name we can look for. Can we look this up? Uh, yeah, you on can, the internet? It, it, it was called the Pole to Pole Run. Pole to Pole Run. And the run. runner's name is Pat Farmer. Okay. Yeah. Let's get into your uh, Australian-ness. Okay, let's do that. <laughs> I'll have so, another sip of beer then. Yeah, Hang good. On. Yeah, it's only fitting. Um, I've been to Australia once. It was back in 96. And I went from Melbourne up to Cairns. And... Uh, uh, you're doing a good job of, of saying the names. Cans. Uh, well, that's, Melbourne. That I didn't quite, say Melbourne. You sound quite British, but at <clears throat> least you're not saying Melbourne. Yeah, or Cairns. Cairns. Yeah, I know. You have to learn to like get rid of the R. You can sound. spell Melbourne. In my, you can spell it M E L B A N. Melbourne. Melbourne. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm Midwest too, so we're we're already hard on the R's. Yeah. And then when you get to Australia, you just got to throw it all away. Throw the R away. Yeah, no Get need rid of for it. it. No need for Although it. Although you probably can Beer. hear that I've brought it right back because otherwise <laughs> when I'm ordering, I, I can't get any water. Water. Could I please have some water is <laughs> what I say. I'm, I need a water and a beer, please. Beer. Beer. Yeah. You saw The Simpsons went to Australia. You saw that one, I right? did. The, the cane toads. <laughs> when, she tra- yeah. <laughs> when Marge kept trying to ask for water. <laughs> one beer coming up. No, water. Beer. <laughs> Water, beer. <laughs> the, uh, but the one thing I always tell people, they ask me to describe Australia, and one thing that really hit me out was there's just there's nobody there. It's like mm. 23 million people in this massive country, mm. and there's there's more than that in almost twice as many in California. Yeah, it's nuts. It's great. It, I know it's it's amazing that a bit of it just like I would go to these amazingly cool towns, these beach towns, where here they would be overrun with hotels and. Yeah. t-shirt shops and the whole thing and it's just like a mellow yeah it's, it's not a, ruined it's a, yet or you know it's just still kind of like uh byron bay or something like that yeah. if byron bay was in america it would be overrun it would be massive yeah no it's um it, it's a blessing and a curse it's great when you're on the road and traveling and doing that kind of thing because like you say you know you have i think unless you've been to australia it's hard to fathom the incredible beauty of the kind of beaches and the coast because you know, you, you literally, you come across a gem of a beach and you, you think, what a beautiful spot. And I'm not kidding. You can probably drive another 40 minutes and you'll just find the same thing, you know, different. But you just, you can drive for like days and just every time you stop the car, you're at a beautiful beach. Right. And, um, and people that haven't been to a place like that find it hard to relate to because, you know, I mean, in LA, you've got some cool lifestyle and culture stuff and, you know, you've got beautiful weather but the beaches here are kind of nothing by comparison <laughs> yeah. um they're they're i really like them but they ain't they ain't australia yeah that's true is it is it hard for you in the reverse when you come here and just say god damn there's people everywhere <laughs> there's so i guess many it's people. probably a novelty for me yeah um and i i kind of like i like density as well as like i i, I kind of like the extremes so i i kind of like isolation and I also like intense density. I've spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia and I love the madness of places like Vietnam and Thailand where it's just intensely manic. And, and it is madness. Of, yeah. And, and I really thrive off that. I love that energy. Um, I find that's something kind of quite intoxicating to be around. And everywhere you go in uh, Southeast Asia, that they would assume when I was traveling around there last year, their first assumption is that I was Australian. 
They right. see a white guy walking around. Usually it's like, oh, yeah. Australian? No. And uh, especially I was in Bali. I went to Bali. Oh, for, Bali is basically That's like the Vegas of... <laughs> the Vegas? That's actually... I haven't heard the that The Vegas before. of that's, Australia. I like that. But they told me not to stay in that town. It was Kuta? Was, mm-hmm. Yeah. You, and they were right. It was. You, you got to get out of. You got to get out of Kuta and but find, I went up to, find your own little hut yeah. on the beach somewhere. I went up to Ubud, which yeah. is nice, and then I dove in the Gili Islands, the which was beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. Um, and then I dove when I was in Australia. I dove up there in the in the Coral Sea and stuff like that. It's just just gorgeous. But then, again, this was '96, so I don't know. Do you dive or? I, I don't dive. Um, you would be probably quite surprised going back. I'd say places like Byron Bay. They're not overrun like Vegas, but they're not as as kind of tranquil as they used to be. Well, it's now like, aren't the celebrities living there? Doesn't like Nicole Kidman have a house there and all that other stuff? Yeah, we, you know, I, I'd say the her, Aussie celebs, her and Russell. Russell, Russell probably hang out there. <laughs> Russell. Russell's got a compound actually up at Coffs Harbor somewhere, which is in that area. He's got like a, a ranch. A ranch. Yeah. The uh, my friend uh, Jim Short, who did the show last year, he's Australian, but he moved here he's a comedian and he would say because i was trying to get the ruling you never find out one minute russell crowe is kiwi it depends whether he's throwing phones or not that's what he said he said the exact same thing when he when he's uh, winning an oscar he's a proud aussie and then when he's throwing a phone at someone's head he's he's an asshole from exactly from wellington well our our press (laughs) used to our press used to refer to um tom cruise and nicole kidman as our tom and nicole (laughs) He was our Tom. He's not our Tom anymore. Though. No, yeah, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> Once they got divorced and he started jumping on sofas, he was yeah, out. He was he was a Kiwi. <laughs> <laughs> but in in something that small, when you realize it, it's just Aussie, Aussies are a pretty tight knit group. I mean, they, if someone hits it big, like everybody knows who they are, mm. you know. And uh, like my friend uh, Eddie Ift, who was here, is a popular comedian down there, and he did a TV show, I think it was Rove Live, Yeah, and it was still, he did it about maybe 10 years ago, but he said at that time, and it was like The Tonight Show used to be here, mm-hmm. where Australia only had like five channels or something, Yeah, and everybody watched this one show, so you could do one set and one then, night, and the next morning, half the country knows your name. Like, the whole, yeah. he could walk down the street, and people would shout out to him. Yeah, it's a... It's a it's a funny thing. I mean, admittedly, that's half the country of a very small country. Yeah, <laughs> all ten of them know yeah, who I am. Exactly. Um, I'm a pretty big celebrity in Australia. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, we I guess we are a pretty close knit bunch. Um, the the kind of I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> my first uh, contact with a lot of Australians. My first trip out of the country. I w- after college, I went backpacking around uh, yep. Europe. You know, the whole Eurail passes and staying. Hostels, and I met all these uh, Australians everywhere, and I said, "Wow!" Because they were so much fun, mm. and uh, I, that was going to be my next big trip, and it was. But um, when Aussies take off, they take off. Like, like they'll go travel for a year. Well, you know, you got to think that it's like a it's a ten hour flight to yeah. to, to next door. You know, <laughs> other than New Zealand, like you want to go to Thailand or Bali, it's like you know you're committing eight hours. If you want to go to Europe, it's twenty plus hours. I think they're like travel is really something that's pressed upon young people like this is what you should go see stuff much more so than here i, I think so and i think it comes it's from, encouraged yeah i think it definitely is it's definitely part of the culture is is doing that thing at the end of high school of of a gap year either a gap year or a backpacking year uh and i i feel like it's probably because we are a small country in that way um we grow up with a lot of british and american culture that's kind of what we see more of probably even than australian culture yeah so we learn that we are not 
the kind of we're not like the center of anything. We feel like we have interesting stuff going on, and it's almost like we feel like we want to take that out. Whereas if you, you know, if you wanted to be a, an actor or a comedian or a, you know, even a writer, you were born in America, you'd you'd go to LA or you'd go to New York or you'd stay where you were because you would already feel like you were in that center where you could feed that beast. Whereas in Australia, there is, you know, there are viable and interesting industries, you know, in the arts, particularly in Australia, but they're small. They're small town compared to Europe or America. So I think when you're growing up, you have that sense of having to go out and take your shit out to the right. world because the world isn't going to come get it from you. Do they have that fear of like a brain drain and a talent drain that uh, people start to get big enough and they have to leave? I mean, is that feeling there? Or? Not as a fear, I don't think. Um, I mean, does like, I don't know, is it encouraged? How do they look at, say, someone like you who came here to get more work, I assume? I mean, there's only so much work you could do production-wise there, probably. There, There is, and... But it's never, it's never. I don't think it's ever really regarded as as a problem because it's like, you know you shouldn't leave, you should stay here. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and most people, I'd say most people come back because one of the things that everybody, healthcare. I think a, a lot of Australians think, you know, healthcare, education, raising kids, um, safety, environment, all of those things are pretty pretty big positives in Australia. It's hard to beat um, what you have at your disposal if you're an Australian. Um, and it, so it's, it's almost like your, your rite of passage is to have lived somewhere else, but not necessarily left forever. Um, having said that, almost everyone that I know these days seems to have moved to New York, which is why I moved to LA because I'm, I'm rebelling. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, New York is much more of a culture shock from Australia than here, I would think. It is. The weather's very similar here in LA and, you know, the driving thing and the beaches and stuff like that. New York is a pretty big... Yeah, jump. New York's a big jump, but it, it uh, certainly in, in, in my, I don't know, maybe my demographic or just where I went to university or something, New York is, the, is these days the beacon. I think in Australia 10, 15 years ago, it was London. London was where everybody went. Yeah. Um, and now it just feels like New York is the place that you're supposed to go to. Um, <laughs> and, but having said that, it's biased. It's skewed heavily towards the people I know who are actors, writers, yeah. TV people. So you're artistic types. Yes, yes. <laughs> Which is why I've come to LA because it's, you know, I can I can now I mean, what I actually really love about LA is and and here here's me, I'm going to kind of paint in in broad clichéd strokes which are probably wrong and offensive, so I apologize in <laughs> advance. But it's sort of like the um Sydney Melbourne thing in Australia. Um Melbourne is probably more like New York or Europe and Sydney is more like LA. Um, and what tends to happen is I think Sydney people really love Melbourne because they see it for what it is. Whereas sometimes Melbourne is more like, oh, Sydney, you know, it's crap. Yeah. And I think that happens here too. Oh, absolutely. L- LA is very optimistic and, and positive. And so if you say to someone in LA, oh, I'm going to New York for a couple of weeks. New Yorkers go, love to they trash go, Great. LA. I love New York. New York's fantastic. But when you're in New York and you say you're coming to LA, they go, oh, sorry. Yeah, oh, that <laughs> place. Yeah. yeah. Well, Which is I, why I, it's good to be in the place that's positive, <laughs> yeah. because you can have both, and you don't have to worry about it. Every uh, city I would come to in Australia it would remind me of a, of a city here, because I had been around the country yeah. a lot, so it was like uh, Sydney, or Melbourne was so much like uh, San Francisco, you know, yeah. with, the, with the trolley cars and the hills, and, yeah. and the weather is very similar as well, like and then you get up yeah, 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 foggy <laughs> and cold, you know, and then you would get up to uh, Sydney, and the weather was like here... But it's kind of like San Francisco with the bay, but it's yeah. more spread out and a little bigger. So remind me, and it's kind of like the center of where the entertainment mm. for is is for um, 
Australia, and then I would get up into Brisbane, and that reminded me of Miami. It's okay. like muggy, yeah. about the same size, about a million people. And so it was very, like, very bling interested. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> people driving around with shiny necklaces on. <laughs> is it like that in Brisbane? Uh, Brisbane, I think if if like Brisbane and Perth is like Perth, I never went to. The, I guess that's the most remote city in the world. Apparently, is it like the most isolated? Right. It's farthest away from everything. Yeah, and it's, they have a pretty two thousand miles from the rest of Australia. I've never been. See, I've never. See, made you've never it over. been either. Yeah, yeah. I've that. I've been. I've Western Australia is the only state of the seven. I hope there's seven that I haven't been to. It's massive. It's yeah. so massive. It really, really is. It's absurd. And Perth is. What, what's the image of Perth there? Well, my cliched image of Perth, and I apologize <laughs> to my cousin who lives there, and and all of the other wonderful Perth people. Um, Perth has had a huge mineral um, boost to, to its economy. There's a lot of mining money in there. And from what I've heard from outsiders, and so not from insiders, is that it's bred a kind of pretty full-on new money culture. New money, yeah. Bling, a lot um, of people getting gold-plated Mercedes. $15 for a beer, you know, that kind <laughs> yeah. of thing. Give me, as, uh, as an Aussie who's been around that area a lot, I'm assuming, your top places to visit when you tell people about Southeast Asia, your favorite places. Well, I, I really like to fly the flag for Cambodia um, yeah. because most people tend to duck into Siem Reap That's where um, I went. and see the temples uh, on their way to do something else or to be on their way to be in Thailand and Vietnam. Um, and so I, because you can tell I moved to LA instead of New York, I kind of like to do the other thing. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time in Laos and a lot of time in Cambodia. Uh, partly because my brother was living in uh, Phnom Penh, oh, but wow. I've I've travelled quite extensively through Cambodia, and I got to say, ha- having done that and having spent three solid months in Phnom Penh, it's just such a beautiful country in terms of the people and the the sort of exchanges that you can have, in like the the friends that you make in terms of those. I guess like the friends, like the equivalent of like the guy that you know who's always on the corner and this guy that you bump into from time to time. They're just really unique uh, sort of little micro friendships that, that I've experienced over there and just always had this sense of a really a really kind of beautiful soul to the people there. Um, and it's a, you know, it's, a, it's a really kind of vibrant place, but it's not intense and exhausting like somewhere like Bangkok is. Yeah, you know, Bangkok you, can be a little much. Yeah, you can get the hang of Phnom Penh to the point that it's no longer sort of super stressful and tiring to kind of just do your thing there. You can, you can get enough language and get by and, and do all those sorts of things. And I, I just found it really fascinating. Least favorite place, a place you would never go back to? That's a, that's a tough one. Um, any incidences of like, uh, have you been thrown in jail anywhere? Close calls, danger? No, because I, I almost never regret anything bad because <laughs> by the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Other than New Orleans, yeah. any uh, any other stomach issues anywhere? Get sick anywhere? Yeah, I did. I did some pretty interesting, um, interesting hurling in Cambodia <laughs> in Siem Reap, actually. Oh, really? I made the mistake of ordering a hamburger because oh. I was just craving a hamburger. Never order a hamburger when you're in Asia. No, order something you know from the local menu. Eat what they eat. Yeah, eat I ate eat. a hamburger. It was like the one time I did it, and I even as I was eating it, I knew it was a bad idea. Uh, it might have um, been beef. It might have been something else. You don't know. It, it might have been cooked. It might not have been. You know. <laughs> Um, so that was pretty intense, but I was, I, I was pretty lucky in Asia, actually. It was like, I, I kind of had this idea of, of, of starting a, um, a Southeast Asian, uh, tourism boot camp. 
where I basically take uh, overweight people from uh, the West <laughs> and I fly them. Where are you going to find them in yeah. America? <laughs> so I, and then I just fly. Well, we're pretty fat in Australia too. <laughs> well, yeah. We, we can roll if you know what I mean. <laughs> oh, I know. Um, and I'll just take them to, you know, Bangkok and I'll say, eat whatever you want. And in two weeks time, I'll take you home and you'll be lighter. <laughs> So, you know, that, that's my business plan. If anyone wants to uh, to invest in that, they can get in touch with me through your podcast. Right. Um, what's your next trip? Where are, you, where are you off to next? Me and my girlfriend are, are considering a, a drive down the Baja coast into Mexico. Um, work on your Spanish? Work on my Spanish, do a sort of Christmas in the sun, because in Australia it's sunny. Oh, Christmas. that's right. So, That's the other thing to get used to. We now we show uh, Christmas in in yeah. Australia, and everybody's on a barbecue and on the beach and surfing Santa. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean Bondi Beach on Christmas Day is just a sea of um, everybody's in board shorts and red yeah. Santa hats. And all the uh, ski resorts in California, you know, all the uh, workers there are all Aussies and Kiwis. Right. Like if you go up so to they the do, Bear, they do yeah. Christmas barbecue stuff. Yeah, yeah. But Mammoth, it's all like Aussies and Kiwis. So yeah, right. I think they're away on their summer break, I guess it would be. Yeah, right? yeah, I think so. Yeah, that was lucky for me, actually. I skied Whistler last year. Oh, wow. And, um, and the, you know, the lift ticket there is not the cheapest thing that ever happened. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, you know, I walked up to the desk and I was like, Oh, we'll we'll have two. We'll have two because you, you you beef up the Australian accent whenever there's a commercial uh, exchange. Because half the time someone turns around and goes, "Oh, I love your accent." Oh, but in this case, it was an Aussie. This gets you laid all over North America. <laughs> in this case, it was an Aussie girl, and um, she, she was, saw her right and, through your and bullshit. She was like, "Oh, I haven't heard an Australian accent in a week," and I was like, "Well, here I am," and there we were with our fifty percent discount. Fifty percent? Yeah, you son of a bitch. Fifty percent. Yeah. How do, are you a good skier? No, I'm terrible. Um, I skied in, I'm still limping, actually. It was a year ago. Oh. I skied into a tree. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, my knee skied into a tree. The rest oh, of okay. me missed well, it. Well, the rest of you is fine. And someone came to the rescue really quickly, and I was like, I was kind of off the trail. And I was like, how did you know I was here? And they said, oh, we saw the top of a tree suddenly shake itself <laughs> loose. Of, you know, it's got the snow on the yeah, tree. Yeah, and all the they powder comes Suddenly down. the powder went, and we knew someone was in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> when I was in, uh, I went to the South Island of New Zealand on that trip. Before I went to Australia, we went to New Zealand, took a bus tour, mm -hmm. and we went to the glacier there. Yeah. And there was all these Aussies on my bus, and most of them were from Perth, actually. But the bus driver pulled over and announced on the loudspeaker and said, anybody who hasn't seen snow before can go play in the snow. Oh, wow. So all these Aussies run off the bus and they're like picking it. There's like a little pile of snow on the side of the road <laughs> and they're throwing it at each other and me and these Canadians are just looking at them just shaking our heads like, oh God, yeah, look right. at them. Actually, when I was They've in never the... seen it. Yeah, that well, blew me away. I, I hadn't seen it. I, I, I've still never forgiven my parents and maybe this is why I'm such an angry person. Um, when I was like five, we were driving through the Alps in Italy and I'd never seen snow and then there it was on the side of the road. And it's magical when you see it for the first time, isn't it? Did they pull over and let me play? No. no. Not like this nice bus driver. No. We were it was a narrow road and it was dangerous to stop and we had to get to where we were going and you would see snow later. <laughs> did I see snow? No, I did not. Not until I was 10. What were you doing? Were you skiing there? You didn't go skiing? Uh, you were in the Alps and you didn't go... No, I don't even know what we were doing. We were touring around. I lived in the UK for a while when I was five. Oh, okay. And so I think we drove to, you know, Venice or... No, not Venice. We drove to somewhere in Italy. It was lovely. <laughs> it was lovely. San Gimignano. There you go. Oh, it's come back. Very nice. Yeah. Um, 
Why, man? I appreciate you doing this. This is a lot of fun. This was fun. Did Thank you uh, for having me? Is there something online that we can see your work, or is there? Do you have a website? Uh, I have a. There's a trailer for my short film up, which was just in the Venice Film Festival in Italy a couple of months ago, uh, and you can find that if you go to Mala, as in the name dash M A R L A dash film dot com. Marla Marla dash film dot com dot com. Okay. Yeah. And that's a short? It's like a 20-minute? It's a 15-minute that was in competition there. Oh, congratulations. So that, thank you. directed you. it. I wrote and directed it. Anybody we know in this? Uh, no, not yet. Is your girlfriend in it? My girlfriend's not in it. Okay. She, she's not an actor. Oh, she's not She's either. not an actress either. Um, <laughs> but you never the, know what they want to go by it's anymore. It's an Aussie, Aussie cast, but the, the girl who's in it, his name is Edwina Richard. She's in America. She's, she's doing the thing. Mm-hmm. And she's insanely talented. So have a look at the trailer. Uh, you'll get a, an, an idea of that, and if if um, keep an eye out for her because I think you may see more of her to come. Awesome! All right, and, and we'll actually, m- the guy too, but he's still in Australia. He should come to LA. I'm trying to convince him to move out here, um, <laughs> but they're both phenomenal, and I was very lucky to work with them. Well, knowing them, they'll probably just end up in New York. Yeah, you're the weird one. You come here, then they all go to exactly. New York. Exactly. Well, that's Nick King, everybody. Thank you so much, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs>